Gracious God, may the words that I say be acceptable and pleasing to you. May they challenge us as we consider another great hymn of the faith and what these words actually mean to us, not just to the people who wrote them. Pour into our lives with these words of challenge and conviction and guidance and hope. May your spirit be involved in each one of them. I pray this for me and for all of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, the people of God said together, Amen. So far we have gone through in the top seven hymns of the faith. Our first one was number two, Holy, Holy, Holy. Then we follow with number one, Amazing Grace. Number three, Be Thou My Vision. And number four, last week, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Today's should be an interesting one. Because today's hymn was written by a pastor on a way to a meeting. Now everybody does that, right? He was invited by the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope under the guise that they were interested in hearing his views that conflicted with the religious establishment of his day. But actually the council he was going to was set up as a trap. First, it was their intention to humiliate him and then murder him on his way home like you would do after any good church meeting, right? Maybe, I don't know. Hopefully not. As it turned out, the pastor was craftier than his adversaries, and he defended his cause with such authority and eloquence. On the way home, he was traveling in his carriage in the forest, and friendly Prince Philip kidnapped him and kept him in his castle, protecting him from imminent harm. Even though he knew his life and reputation were at risk, he had gone anyways. And on the way, he was comforted by the words of Psalm 46, which say, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. If you get the actual daily verses on your YouVersion Bible app, then you'll notice what the daily scripture is for today. So don't gloss by it. Maybe just look at that and go, oh, that's good. But no one realizes what it really is. Go look at the daily scripture. It was after this, the pastor penned this famous hymn. Probably this pastor's greatest accomplishment in life was the proclamation that we are saved by God's grace through faith alone. He led away from the church of Rome based upon the battle cry, the just shall live by faith from Romans 1.17. The second thing was translating the Bible into the language of the people that that changed the entire world. And the third is his 37 hymns that he wrote, of which this hymn would rank as his finest. He believed the singing of hymns was most significant in motivating the believer, and it said this hymn was sung by many oppressed Christians as they were forced into exile or brought to their martyrdom and their death. Our number five hymn is what? What do you think? A mighty fortress is our God. It's our number five hymn. Written by one, if not the most famous pastors in history, Martin Luther, who led the Protestant Reformation. Leading the way, not just in word, but in song, was Martin Luther. Because Luther placed an emphasis upon congregational singing, like we do now. They didn't do that before. 
Luther's first hymnal was introduced in 1524 with a total of eight hymns, four of which were his. By 1529, the growing popularity of congregational singing necessitated Luther to update his hymn book, which included the first hymnal publication of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress is often called the Battle Hymn of the Reformation. Because the song embodies with strength and great gusto the very spirit of the Reformation that transformed the entire world. And when the cause of the Reformation was seemed lost, it's said that Luther would turn to his close friend and colleague, Philip, and say, let's sing the 46th Psalm together. Perhaps at this point or sometime in the past, You've wondered about the English version that we sing today because, hey, didn't Luther speak German? How are we singing an English song when Luther only spoke German? Well, the version most of us sing today, which is in our hymnal, was translated by Frederick Hedge more than 300 years later in 1853. It's by no means a literal translation of the song as you're gonna, of, of the original as you're going to find out. He understandably took certain licenses for the sake of meter and rhyme. Add to the fact that Hedge was a Unitarian minister. He believed, as all Unitarians do, that Jesus was fully human, but not God. Unitarian, not Trinitarian. So Unitarians believe that Jesus was not God. You can't have three gods. That doesn't make any sense. Trinitarianism for them is three gods. That he's inspired by God, but not his eternal divine Son. In other words, no Trinitarian. To give Hedges due, though, his English version embodies the mood and major themes of Luther's original. The hymn itself takes its inspiration mainly for a couple of verses in Psalm 46. Although there is scripture to back up every single verse, and I'm going to send it out to you after this is over sometime this week so you can really look into that. But Psalm 46, 1 through 2 says once again, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. So Psalm 46 opens with God as refuge and strength. And the battle hymn opens up with a mighty fortress is our God. Literally, a strong or unshakable castle is what Martin Luther originally wrote. Mighty fortress, admittedly, is less familiar imagery for us that captures Psalm 46 better, though, what comes to mind when we think about it, a castle. Because what's the view in the psalm is a castle is first strength and then beauty. Think, if you like Lord of the Rings, think Helm's Deep, some big, big, big castle, not Disneyland. It's not a princess castle. Castles for us are very pretty sometimes. It's not the kind of castle. It's strength first, beauty second. And Hedge's second line says this, God is a bulwark, never failing. Yes, that word is bulwark. If you've been singing bulwark all this time, when you sing this hymn, you've been singing it wrong for your entire life, more than likely. It's bulwark, like wool. So bulwark, try it with me. Bulwark, bulwark. Now what is a bulwark? What's a bulwark? Anybody know? You sing the hymn all the time, a, bi- a mighty bulwark, and you're like, I don't know what a bulwark even is. What's a bulwark? Anybody know? It's a wall. It's also on a ship, the part above a deck, 
that's above the main deck. So like if you see like a tanker and that little part where you step up to the top part right here and there's a little thing right here or like, you know, on the Titanic they're like doing this, that's a bulwark. Any part that's above the main level of a ship is called a bulwark. Go home and impress your friends with that. So what we missed from the original is that God, our mighty fortress, is not only defensive but also offensive, like an offensive. Literally, Luther wrote this, a good defense and weapon. So it was a good defense, but it was also a good weapon, defensively and offensively. And that God not only protects us, but leads us forward towards victory, he was saying. Along with the refrain of verses 7 and 11 from Psalm 46 that say, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. These are the verses. In crafting his poetic lines, Hedge says, God is our helper. He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. But Luther's original is more sweeping because he says, He helps us get free from every misery. You see the difference? There's something lost in the translation sometimes that is brought back. So we all see this is the end of the parallels of Psalm 46. There isn't anything else that attaches to it. That merely, rather than a mere hypnotic expression of the psalm, we would better do to call this a Christian hymn that's inspired by it. This great hymn, now sung in 170 languages, shows us that no matter how dire the circumstances might be in our eyes, that God is greater than our circumstances. Amen? That God is greater than that. That bigger than anything else that we can possibly imagine. And will deliver us from our greatest fears through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of this hymn for Martin Luther. And when many Christians read the words of this hymn, we find the word difficult to relate to because our experience is not what the early Lutherans experienced. In first service, for the praise team and everything, we're talking about how to make a mighty fortress fun because it's a dull, dragging song sometimes. And most of us probably wouldn't put it in the top ten of the faith. But while Luther indeed did take a stand for the truth, and post his 95 theses or statements against the Catholic, rebellion against the Catholic Church. That was a big deal. On the church that's actually in Wittenberg, they're actually emblazoned in metal on the doors. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever seen it? Nobody in this group? Can you imagine that? All those things are emblazoned in metal upon this church's doors. On that Halloween, October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, when he did this. Reformation Day. Because the All Saints Day was the next day, the big Catholic celebration. It was a stand that was very dangerous at that time. Luther put his very life on the line for what he believed, and so did thousands of others. In the Netherlands alone, 50,000 people died because they chose to follow Luther in his stand against the Pope and the church of their day. It wasn't simple or easy. It's important to remember that's these, what these words come out of. And the story that probably inspired Psalm 46 is actually from Second Chronicles 20. Now, I'm sure you've all read Second Chronicles 20 backwards and forwards and just know it by heart. But in case a few of you haven't, 
I'm going to explain the story to you so you can be able to understand. Second Chronicles 20 tells of a miraculous victory of the children of Israel during the day of King Jehoshaphat. Say Jehoshaphat. That's just fun to say. You're going to say it a couple more times. Just hold on. Three nomadic tribes joined together against Israel. When the Israel had come out of Egypt, God told them they couldn't do anything with these tribes. They had to have the land, the promised land, but not take care of any of these tribes. So now, the threat of being wiped out by these tribes, the people led by King Jehoshaphat, say Jehoshaphat, turned to the Lord in prayer and asked for help. They knew only a miracle from God could save them. After Jehoshaphat, say Jehoshaphat, prayed to the Lord, the Lord answered the prayer of Israel through a prophet who told Jehoshaphat, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now here's the weird part. The next morning, as the people got ready to go out into battle, King Jehoshaphat, say Jehoshaphat, you were slow on that one, that was slow, made what must go down as the strangest strategic military decision in history. Instead of putting the archers or the swordsmen in the front of the group, instead he put the choir. Yeah, that's right. Choir, look up. Pay attention. He put the choir in front. I told the praise team, the praise team in front. This surely must have seemed very strange to the people as well, but they went along with Jehoshaphat. Say, Jehoshaphat. Okay, you're still there. When they arrived to do battle, the choir began singing. Praise the Lord, for His mercy endures forever. That's when things got really strange. Because the three armies they came to fight all of a sudden instead began to fight with each other. And when the dust cleared and settled and they looked up, all three of the armies were all dead. Right in front of the choir. No, the choir didn't kill them. They didn't know. All three of the armies lay dead on the ground. Jumping Jehoshaphat. Yeah, you knew it was coming, didn't you? You knew it. You've got to work that in somewhere. Who could say jumping Jehoshaphat anymore? I mean, come on. Luther saw himself in the same position as the Israelites did Jehoshaphat's day. He saw many foes. And the emperor, Charles V, the pope, even the possibility of his own townspeople who would be against him. But they weren't so much against Luther himself as for what he stood for. Salvation by faith in Christ alone. That was not the norm of the day. It made a lot of folks mad. We take it for granted nowadays as Protestants. Protestants. Luther believed his battle was really not against the emperor or the pope, though. He recognized his real enemy as the old evil enemy is now in earnestness with his intent. Can you imagine singing that? That would be a great song, wouldn't it? Or as we know it when we sing it, our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. It's a little different, isn't it? Satan himself. Luther could have been terrified enough to deny the truth, but he was not afraid, even as he writes in the hymn, Great power and much deception is his cruel armor. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Because Luther recognized that he could not win the battle for truth by himself. In fact, he realized it really wasn't his battle. 
That's why he writes in the last line of the first verse, he writes this, Our earth on earth is not its likeness. And we hear on earth is not his equal. And in verse 2, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? This is what he wrote. With our power, nothing is accomplished. We are very soon lost. See, Luther knew he was in Jehoshaphat's position. The battle would have to be fought and won by the Lord himself. And Luther was willing to trust God completely to fight the battle against the emperor and the pope. And Luther writes, The right man fights for us when God himself, whom God Himself has chosen. Do you ask who that is? His name is Jesus Christ. See, Luther's courage and his confidence were not in himself, but Jesus Christ. Amen? That he knew he could not win the battle against Satan or the Pope or the Emperor or anyone else in the world or anything else in the world. He saw God fighting for him on the words that we know now. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, Lord Sabaoth his name. Which is the hardest part of this song to sing. And then here is where, most significantly, the Unitarian hedge drops Luther's reference to Jesus as God. Since, of course, they do not believe Jesus is the Son of God. Hedge inserts from age to age the same in place of what Luther wrote, which is, there is no other God. That's a pretty big difference between the two. It's the greatest of Luther's extreme statements that doesn't make hedges cut. In case you're against the Unitarians, I remember most, many of the founding fathers were also Unitarians. So keep that in mind when you don't like the Unitarians anymore. And then it says, He must win the battle. He must win the battle. So why didn't Luther tremble? Why was, why was he so fearless? Because he understood the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. He knew that he had a Savior that had lived the perfect life that Luther knew that he could never live. He believed in a Savior who died a horrible death on Good Friday to bring us all forgiveness. And he believed in a Savior who was resurrected from the dead to give new life. And he trusted the Savior that promised, Behold, I will be with you always. Amen? That's Luther's Savior. That's the Savior that we believe in and trust. That's the basics of the faith. See. Should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. And Hedge, though at the the onset of stanza 3, introduces a subtle difference worth noting. This is what he says. And though this world with devils filled, He basically concedes a magnitude to the evil presently at work in our world that Luther did not. Luther did not believe the world was full of devils. He says, though the world is filled with devils, as it is. Now, Luther, devils enough for sure, Luther Luther believed, but not a world full of them. Luther says in his, which is quite different, even if. He raises a hypothetical to make a case for God. This confident faith now. Because he says this, even if the world were full of devils and would want to swallow us up. Not that he believed the world was full of devils. At least just one. 
But if it was the case, he's saying, we would not thus fear so very much, we will nevertheless succeed. That's a big difference in tone. So Luther aims to conquer fear and feed faith in the present by asserting that even if it was much worse, but it's not, even if it was much worse, we'd still be all right. Hedge believes it was much worse. We'd still only be secure in Christ. And then both end the same that stands with one little word shall or can fell him. One little word shall fail him. What's the one little word? You ever thought about it? Do you ever mean you've seen the song like over all the years? What's the one little word? It's not it's not clearly defined in there. What's the one little word that happens? What's the one little word that, that makes the difference? Maybe you haven't thought about that. Maybe you've wondered about it your whole life. It does little good to know the single world word that will take down the raging prince of darkness if you have no idea what the word even is. As they all shouted out at first service, what is the one little word do you think? What is it? Jesus. Sunday school answer. Thank you, my friend. Sunday school answer. That's the only thing I get out of this crowd, too. Usually, Sunday school answer. They're afraid to answer anything else. Is it really Jesus? That seems like it's so simple. Like, that's what it is. Oh, it's just Jesus. At first, first service, they were so bold. It's like, we know exactly what the answer is. But is the right Sunday school answer always the answer for things? Most time, it's not. While maybe popular and catchy idea to mention Jesus for protection against Satan, the Bible doesn't specifically advocate that approach anywhere. The demons knew his name and had no, no problem speaking his name. Remember in the Scripture? They talked directly to Jesus. They weren't afraid of Him, knowing exactly who He was. So Jesus' name is not a magic spell that wards away evil spirits. You can't walk into a dark, scary place and just go, Jesus, 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 Jesus! It's not going to get you anywhere. His name is not magical in itself in some way. It continues, That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. Maybe Luther meant the Word, the Word itself. You know, Jesus is the Word. Jesus Himself, John 1, 1, the Word. But it's unlikely that Luther would refer to Jesus, the ascended King, reigning now on ev- over in every name in heaven on earth as a little word. There's the clue. It's a little word. Jesus is not a little word. Jesus is not a little Son of God. Indeed, the Word was God. That's a big deal. This is what Luther wrote in that same stanza. That Word they shall let stand and will have no thanks for it. So what is that Word? Well, actually, you have to look at the writings of Martin Luther to be able to figure out what that Word really is. Something you may not know, just like I didn't know until I did my research, is that Martin was the king was the king of the comebacks to his detractors. He was a master of one-liners, people he didn't like. Gems like this: I would not smell the foul odor of your name. You people are more stupid than a block of wood. Or my personal favorite. For you are an excellent person, as skillful, clever, and versed in Holy Scripture as a cow in a walnut tree or a sow on a harp. 
which he said against an enemy named Hansworth. And you can look these up, and there are a whole bunch more. He did not mince words with people who were detractors of him. And so in these other writings is where he talks about what these things are. So Martin Luther actually identified the word he had in mind. And the one little word to fell our foe in against Hansworth, the same guy we talked about a a second ago, devil you lie. Speaking of himself in the third person, Luther says the one simple proclamation that defeats Satan is the simple verdict, liar. That's what he writes. Satan is a liar and the father of lies in John 8, 44. So the one little word against Satan is liar. That's the word. Liar. Because in that word, that word is the word of faith. Think about it. Whenever you believe in something, then you put faith in that. When you don't believe in it, you believe it's, it's a lie. You believe it's not real. When, so if you don't believe in those, those negative things, those evil things, those Satan-devil type things, you call Satan a liar, you're believing in faith. And so liar is also a word of faith. And Martin Luther is a man of faith. Faith is the big thing for him. That's what he's all about. And so finally, Hedge's last line His kingdom is forever. Sounds really good, right? Except it loses Luther's for us. Because literally, Luther wrote this, the kingdom must remain for us. That's a big difference. And why is it a big difference? It's a small loss, but it's sweet and important because this great for us-ness of the Reformation that it's for us. It wasn't for the clergy. It wasn't for people in power. It was Reformation was all about that. Do you realize that before the time of Reformation that you did not take communion? None of you would take communion whatsoever. You were not worthy to take communion. You didn't know the Latin to be able to read the liturgy and you didn't know what you were doing. And so there would be the people up here like me, the priests that were up here, and they would take communion for you. And they would do all the rituals. And there was a wall, basically. These are rocks, by the way, not potatoes, in case you thought they were. There's a wall between the people and the clergy. And the Reformation was all about breaking that down. That's why the Bible was written in German for the first time. So the, people could, the common people could actually read it, understand it for the first time in the existence of the church. See? That's the Reformation wonderfully recaptured the people... And so in Christ, we not only catch a glimpse of God's particular kingdom, we're actually invited in. That we're actually become a part of the reign from the inside. Even in some way, we're actually reigning with Him. He wants us to be a part of the kingdom and to actually be with Him, not just do it for us or show us how it's done, but to remain in the kingdom that's forever, but it's for us. Luther was trying to say, that's why it's not so good, the kingdom is just forever. The kingdom is forever for us. See, for our eternal good and our everlasting joy. And so a mighty fortress as our God was not just a song. And for Luther and his followers, it wasn't just words. I mean, I probably, most of us don't put it in the top ten of our favorite songs to sing. 
I don't pull it out very often because it can drag and it can really go down. In Germany, actually, they think even slower than we do. Slow because every word means something to them. For us, you know, we have to figure out how to kind of pep it up in the first service, especially to try and figure out how to make it a praise song out of it, which went really well. It was really good. And, um, but it's just totally different. And the words are hard and it's old English and everything else in the world. But this hymn expressed their strong faith in God who would fight the battle against error and unbelief for them that they were fighting. They were words that gave Luther and his followers courage in the midst of danger, enabled them to face great danger with faith instead of fear. They would actually sing this song as they were burned and as they were killed. Think about that. These are the last words on their lips. You ready to die for your faith? You ready to die for faith that says that by faith alone are you you're saved versus by works? Are you really ready to go to the mat for that? Are you ready to go, well, you know, I can see both sides of it. I think I can figure out how to live in this. These people didn't do that. It is by faith and faith alone that you are saved. And we are willing to die for it. And they did. That's a big deal. So Luther's words written in 1529 are both timely and they're timeless. They are timeless because they hold a great truth for us today. And the truth is this, that the same God who fought for King Jehoshaphat, say Jehoshaphat, very good, and the Israelites, and also fought for Martin Luther and his followers, is the same God who fights for you and me today against sin and death and the powers of this world and this life that would seek to defeat us. Amen? This is the same God from Psalm 46 all the way up. Or Second Chronicles to Psalm 46 all the way up. God is our refuge and our strength. Are there any more powerful words that are written in the Bible than just that to, to hang our hat on and to listen to those words? A mighty fortress is our God. That's incredible. There's this castle in Germany Maybe some of you have been to it. Uh, hello, anybody up there? Hey, thanks. So this castle in Germany, anybody ever been there? This castle? No? So you've been there? Okay. It's in Bavaria. It's a very famous castle, Chi Chi, Bang Bang, lots of other shows, blah, blah, blah. Whenever you need a castle in Germany, it looks like this. There it is. It's a huge castle. It's huge. It's huge. The castle is called, not like you think it is, it's spelled N-E-U, that is not new. In German, that rhymes with boy. So, Neu, right? Neu, Schwan, like Swan with the S, because it basically means Swanstone. Boy, so Neu, Schwanstein. Neu, Schwanstein. Say it with me. Neu, Schwanstein. Say it. Neu, Schwanstein. There you go, a little bit of German you got now. That castle is the kind of castle you're talking about. That castle was impregnable. You could not get to that castle. There was only one place up. There is rock around the entire base all the way around. There is no way up except over the main way. And you get picked off as soon as you would go up there. It was never conquered. That's what we're talking about. A mighty fortress is our God, whose bulwark is never failing, whose wall. His wall is never failing. 
that's what Martin Luther has to teach us and tell us in the number five hymn. Amen. And so, as in the response of that, obviously you're going to sing the number five hymn with new words. And when you get to bulwark, you're going to say bulwark and not bulwark. No bowl, no bowl. Bulwark. So let's stand and sing this great hymn of the faith with great gusto. Information. slow and draggy. I notice our breath got, got a little longer breath every between that little thing every time by the fourth verse. Because before, we were going straight through and by the fourth, it was like, we're going to pay a rest in here just because there's not one. I have to breathe. <laughs>
But that's but that was you know that was the song they sang with such great faith. You know, and if you're in the midst of a trial or something's going on in your life or you are struggling or are struggling or, or what's happening to you, can you imagine hearing those words? God is a mighty fortress. God is our refuge and our strength. He will be present with us no matter what happens to us in our life, no matter what evils are upon us, no matter what life throws at us even to the point of when we think that we're near death or when we, we think that we're going to be overcome, He's there. And those words are so important, not just for them, but they're so important for us. Because there's so many things we go through in life where we're just not even sure that God is with us. We're not sure that we can make it through whatever trial or tribulation that we have. And this song reminds us that God definitely is with us. That God is a mighty fortress and a wall that will never fail us. Amen. Go out with great faith today. You're dismissed.